Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 again. 1 Corinthians 13. We are working our way through Paul's famous chapter on love. And we've noted along the way that this is no mere sentimental fluff. This isn't something simply that you buy from Lifeway and put on a plaque on the wall and make yourself feel better, though it certainly is encouraging when read in light of the totality of Scripture. Paul here is giving us a positive statement about what love ought to look like, what genuine, authentic love looks like, but it stands as an implied rebuke to the church in Corinth. And when read as a mirror for us today, there also is an element of rebuke to us. Sober reflection leads us to see that we don't always measure up. We're not always loving. We're not always patient. We're not kind to everyone. We are often irritated, easily provoked, arrogant, slow to forgive, like we studied last week. And this week, we move into verse 6, which deals with both our actions and also our hearts. This verse will probe us. It will sift us, as God's Word does. It divides between joint and marrow. It cuts like a knife. It shows us who we really are. Am I loving or am I not? But in this, I hope also that we will see more of the beauty of Christ because He is love. He's not merely a loving person, though he was that. He's not merely love personified, though he did personify love. He was love incarnate. He was love, the God of love who took on flesh. And he did it out of love for his bride. And he did it in a way that rejoiced in the truth, even truth that cost him his life. So that's, that's love. That's where we're going. But let's, let's begin. Let's read our text. I'll read 1 Corinthians 13 in its entirety. Hear God's word for you this evening. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we ask simply that you would make us what we are not yet. That you would make us loving people. 
that you would do so with our eyes on Christ, moved and shaped by your Holy Spirit, conformed to the image of the Son, that we might be loving in everything that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 6, our text tonight begins by saying, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Or we might say it rejoices not in unrighteousness. And it seems very straightforward on the surface. It would take a pretty callous person to laugh at clear evil. That's something that the, the Joker did on the old Batman TV shows. He derived pleasure at seeing wickedness happen. And it can be pretty easy for us to spot this kind of behavior out there in the world. For example, we don't merely have the presence of homosexuality. We have Gay Pride Month, rejoicing in unrighteousness. Society is not content merely to have access to abortion. We need to have the shout your abortion hashtag movement on social media. It's not enough to do evil. We must rejoice in evil with an absence of Love, you will rejoice in wickedness. Psalm 10.3 For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the covetous curses and renounces the Lord. However, just because it's easy to spot such unbecoming behavior out there doesn't mean that it's so easy to spot all the times in here in the church or even in here in the heart. Rejoicing in wrongdoing can take several forms. It can bear various fruits. For example, one way that we can delight in unrighteousness is by having within us a hypercritical spirit. Being hypercritical is one fruit of a loveless heart. Earlier generations of Christians would call it having a censorious spirit. That's a spirit quick to censor someone else. It's having a spirit that is inclined to see the failure in others, severely critical, fault-finding, bent towards harping on the failings of others. This sort of disparaging disposition is easy to possess. Indeed, it feels natural to many of us, even though it ought to be to our shame. We have been given two eyes by God, and instead of using both of them to see the good around us, we instead can only find ourselves fixating on the evil, the unrighteous, or the failings of others. This kind of person always has a complaint, is never satisfied. They seem to always be discussing what's wrong with the nation, or what's wrong with the leadership, or what's wrong with the church, and they can even find it exceedingly difficult to admit the good that is actually there. They're reluctant to acknowledge the growth and the graces in others. They're, they're never satisfied with any progress that has been made. This kind of behavior tends towards having a hard heart. Never satisfied, always critical. It's like a father who has a child that comes up with a picture that the child has drawn of the family. And the father, instead of rejoicing in the creativity and the skills, the gifts that the child has done, immediately says, look, you colored outside the lines right here, and look at the unrealistic shape of this head. My head doesn't look like that. If you've ever seen a father who behaves like that, you'll see the souls of his children just be crushed. They, they spout off unbearable burdens around them that, that the weaker souls around them cannot bear. 
And eventually you'll see that good people just stop coming to them because their conversation is always negative. The only people who, will, who can stand to share their company are those who are equally inclined towards being critical. And it produces a hypercritical echo chamber that only reinforces the pattern. And in the end, if you run down that road, all you will find is a heart that can only rejoice in unrighteousness. But a, a censorious spirit isn't the only fruit of a loveless heart. Another way we can rejoice in wrongdoing is through gossip. Gossip. There exists within each of us a temptation towards savoring the juicy. Not all of us are equally tempted towards this, but many will find their souls salivating over the salacious details of some story. I think that's why Proverbs compares gossip to choice morsels that go down. There's a strange appetite in a fallen man or woman to not merely possess knowledge that feels secret and special, but to take it a step further and to delight in some sort of unrighteousness. It's why commercials on TV, you'll be watching a show or a game or something, and it'll cut in with a commercial. It'll say, family of four, brutally murdered. More details at 11. Why does that work? People want to know more. They want to know more about the unrighteousness. That's not sin to watch that newscast. But there's a temptation there. They want to know more about wickedness. I found this temptation in my own heart recently, actually. I was listening to the podcast that detailed the demise of a church in Seattle. And it's not necessarily sinful to listen to investigative journalism like that, but as I listened, I had to shut it off because I found the details of the sin were entertaining to me. It was inclining me to root for the downfall of certain individuals. I wasn't handling the knowledge well, and so I had to remove the temptation. Gossip can have a similar effect. We may couch it in loving language of concern, seeking prayer for somebody. You know, we need to pray for so-and-so. Did you hear what they did? But oftentimes we can just be entertained by the wickedness. And related to gossip is slander. It's its ugly cousin. Gossip is speaking behind somebody's back. Slander is outright assault on someone's character, their reputation. It's murder of someone's name. It's violation of the Sixth Commandment. Slander is also divisive, as Proverbs makes clear, in multiple places. It separates close friends, Proverbs says. And to gossip or slander is to demonstrate a lack of love and rejoice in wrongdoing. Indeed, the next step Another way to delight in wrongdoing is to not merely gossip or slander somebody, but to delight in their downfall. To delight in the downfall of, the fall of others is to delight in, in wickedness or in unrighteousness. The, the Germans have a word for it. Scheidenfreude means to delight in someone else's misfortune. It's a Jeopardy tidbit for you there. We don't have a word for exactly what's happening there, but... Paul would have us consider that to wish for someone else's demise can be a peculiarly malicious vice. Satan is the one who delights in seeing the demise of God's image bearers. 
And when we are entertained or, or pleased or derive pleasure at someone else's demise, we can take up Satan's mantle and wear it as our own. God says in Ezekiel 18.23 that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. And for us to do that, we're not imaging God, we're imaging Satan. This kind of sin can be found in something simple, like reading those tabloids in the checkout line at the grocery store, reading the juicy details of the latest celebrity scandal. could be our favorite podcast or some discernment blogger or watching clips of your favorite political opponent make a fool of themselves and mocking them. Delighting in the downfall of another is no Christian virtue. Love will not have a censorious spirit or it will not participate in gossip. It will not delight in the downfall of another. But these behaviors are all, if they're all the fruit of the sin, what would be the opposite? If these are the vices, what is the corresponding virtue that Paul is extolling? That's the second part of the verse. Love rejoices at the truth, which is an interesting parallel because it doesn't go the way we think it would go. A lack of love rejoices at unrighteousness, so we would expect Paul to say that true love would rejoice at righteousness. That's not what he says. He says love rejoices at the truth. But the connection between truth and righteousness shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with our Bibles. Truth and righteousness often are put together. One old commentator put it this way, truth is gospel verity. It is the saving reality of the divine. Where, right, where unrighteousness prevails, truth is of necessity absent. Unrighteousness prevails where the heart has pleasure in it, loves it, and thus rejoices in it. There, the love that Paul describes is absent. But where the heart rejoices in truth and embraces it gladly, finds pleasure in it and possessing it, there unrighteousness is driven out. In short, where the truth is, there will be righteousness. Where love is, there will be truth and not a delight in unrighteousness. So what does it mean to rejoice in the truth? Well, one way that we could think of it is in terms of gospel progress. Henry says simply that love is glad at the success of the gospel, which is often called the truth in the New Testament. Think of passages like 2 John verse 4, where John, the apostle of love, as he's often called, says that, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. He saw the truth demonstrated in righteousness in others, and it brought him to rejoicing. 3 John 3 says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, indeed, that you were walking in the truth. Rejoicing that others are walking in the truth, that they are advancing gospel fruit, they're bearing genuine fruit. So what might it be, what might it look like, that is, for us to be a people with this kind of love? Well, it would mean that we would refuse to have a hypercritical, censorious spirit, and instead pursue an encouraging spirit. Love is not fault-finding, always fixating on the negative and the problems, never able to admit or to recognize and to appreciate growth. Love is quick to notice and to appreciate evidences of grace in others. Further, love will not rejoice in wrongdoing by partaking in gossip. Proverbs says a, a gossip or a whisperer separates 
close friends. Gossip brings division. It divides, it breaks, it destroys, it ruins relationships. But love refuses to participate. Indeed, the absence of a gossiping soul, the one who delights in wrongdoing, will make gossip die out. That's what Proverbs 26.20 says. For lack of wood, a fire goes out, and where there's no whisperer, contention quiets down. What would the church be like if everyone refused to gossip? The church would be a place of security, of protection, of trust. It would be a haven of love. Love covers a multitude of sins and it lets gossip die by giving it no fuel. It refuses to perpetuate anything that it hears that's not going to be a blessing for others. It also refuses to slander. Instead, chooses to protect the name, the reputation of, of others. That's another way that love demonstrates it rejoices in the truth, by protecting the name of people around you. Love will bend over backwards to protect your reputation. That means speaking the truth, of course, but only speaking negative things when it's done pursuing the good of the others. Love means being quick to point out evidences of grace and growth in those around us. It means not growing impatient when others are slow to progress, slower than we'd care, slower than we'd like. But instead, being grateful to God that there's any measure of growth at all. Love means not harboring a record of wrongs like we discussed last week, but instead is quick to harbor a record of rights. How many of us are keeping a list of all the ways that we have been blessed by others? How many of us are quick to see the ways that people around us are growing and appreciate every inch by inch growth that they have, recognizing that each inch is a grace? Moving on, love rejoices in the truth when it refuses to delight in the downfall of others. See, love mourns. It laments the presence of evil. It laments when the evil one has gained a foothold. Now, I'll certainly admit that there is a sense, a good and right sense, in which we can delight in seeing justice served. But we also need to know that because of our fallen condition, it is easy for that to devolve into delighting in another's demise. We can be conflicted. Rather, a Christian will see the downfall of the wicked or the fool getting the rod that he deserves... And far from simply rejoicing in that, the Christian will reflect. Love calls us to soberly reflect on our own life and to be grateful to God that we did not get the rod that we deserved. Further, love is prompted towards compassion and pity. There's an interesting story in 2 Samuel 4, which you can read later for homework. But David has already been anointed as the next king of Israel. He's been relentlessly pursued by the wicked king Saul. And David has delivered the message that Saul has been killed. And the text says that the messenger thought he was bringing great news to David of Saul's demise. But David says in the text, As the Lord lives, 
who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when the messenger came and told me, behold, Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and I killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. That's a surprising outturn, ending to that story. The messenger was delighting in the news of another man's death, the death indeed of the man that had been anointed to serve God's people. Such delight doesn't belong to true love. And yet how often do we find ourselves a little entertained, a little pleased, a little smug, seeing the downfall of somebody we don't particularly like? It could be a politician or a celebrity, an athlete, a church leader. Be a family member. Love doesn't do that. Love rejoices in the truth. It clings to the truth. It refuses to gloat in the downfall of another man or woman made in God's image. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and instead hold fast to what is good. How good are we at holding fast to what is good? If we really use this text as a mirror, we'll see that In some ways, we all fall short. I've sure seen that as I've studied through it. I find in my own heart great defects that incline me to rejoice in wrongdoing. Not so much in an overt way, exulting in sin. But it's not hard for me to be fault-finding and critical. It often doesn't take effort for us, does it, to spot the deficiencies and the failings of those out there around us and be slow to rejoice in their accomplishments, slow to rejoice in the growth that they've made, however slight it may be. Perhaps maybe you find in your own heart being quick to gossip or slander, to murder the reputation of someone else made in God's image. We can use our tongue for evil rather than rejoicing in the truth. James says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father. And with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. When we destroy someone else's name, when we use our tongue for their demise, we're no better than Satan who's the father of lies and rejoices in unrighteousness. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ did not act this way. Christ never rejoiced in unrighteousness. If anyone had the opportunity to be really critical, to be very effective in their fault-finding, it would have been Jesus. He had perfect knowledge of the heart of every man, and yet... He chose immense love. When the woman in John 8 was caught in adultery and thrown down in front of Jesus by the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, how did he respond? He could have pointed out every sin that woman had done and justly condemned her in her unrighteousness, but he didn't do that. He said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He wasn't like the Pharisees who were fixated on her wickedness in an attempt to conceal their own. In fact, Jesus' sharpest rebukes were for the seemingly religious people who thought they were righteous but were instead full of unrighteousness. 
Jesus wasn't fault-finding and disparaging. Neither, neither was he a gossip. He never whispered juicy morsels to others that they might consume them. Neither did he slander the name of anyone else, murdering their reputation. In fact, rather than murdering a name, the Bible teaches us that he instead protected a name. In fact, he manifested a name. Jesus prayed in John 17, I have manifested your name, the Father's name, to the people to whom you've given me out of this world. See, unlike we Christians who might tarnish the name of God in the eyes of men, every time we gossip and every time we slander, Christ instead perfectly revealed the name of God and protected that name in the eyes of men. He wasn't concerned with speaking the truth at the cost of love, but always conformed all of his speech to truth and love. And he has, in the gospel, protected you. He's provided you with a new name, his name, his perfect name. Have you ever thought about that? His name cannot be tarnished, nor will it ever prove insufficient. And you've been given that name through faith. Simply by belief in Jesus, we are given the protection of His name. That means when God looks at you, and you're trusting in Christ, He doesn't see the gossip. He doesn't see you as the slanderer, that habitual murderer, the one who rejoiced in unrighteousness. He sees you robed in the perfection of the Son with His name written across your forehead. He sees the righteousness of the Son, the truth of the Son, and that causes him to delight. God is love, and love rejoices in the truth. Jesus is the truth, and you are covered in his truth. So he delights in you. You see that chain of logic? If you're trusting in Christ, then be encouraged that God doesn't delight in your failings, because love doesn't do that. Rather, He delights in you because He sees in you the faithfulness and the truthfulness of the Son. Your meager attempts at love, like that little picture that was scribbled, are actually causes of God to delight in you. Even through your imperfect, your slight growth in the truth. Even though we fail, He delights when we repent and, and when we struggle instead towards love and towards truth. He's delighting in every step. Even though we fail, He delights in us. Even though we wander off, He delights when we come home like the father running out to the prodigal son, delighting that the son has come home. Doesn't it warm your heart to know that God delights in you? He rejoices in you. Not because you're so wonderful and perfect, but because you have been given the perfection of Christ. You have been counted as righteous and therefore worthy of His rejoicing. You're worthy in Christ of His rejoicing over you. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. If you're in Christ, then be encouraged that He rejoices over you just like the groom is proud to rejoice over his bride. It isn't a reluctant embrace. What groom has stand up on the, on the, on the pedestal for the wedding and kind of reluctantly leaned in for a peck? Right? He delights, he rejoices over you in Christ. He lifts you up. Zephaniah 3 says he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. 
You don't sing loudly over something you're kind of indifferent towards. You exult in loud singing over something that stirs you and moves you with love. God rejoices in you in Christ, even though you were lamentable in your condition and had earned nothing but judgment and death. He has spared you from such a state and transferred you into a position of honor and of grace. What a privilege we have because of Christ's love. But we must also know that Christ's protection isn't limitless in its scope. It will not extend towards those who reject Him. For those who remain hard in their hearts, who refuse to listen to the Word of God, who refuse to rejoice in the truth presented in Scripture and instead pursue and rejoice in unrighteousness, know that your judgment is coming. Christ will return to vindicate His name and His wrath will be hot and His judgment will be fierce. Hell awaits any who refuse to bend the knee to Christ in this life. Read in Scripture. Read of hell's description and compare it to what I just described of Christ's bride. Don't you want to be rejoiced over? Don't you want God singing over you rather than coming to you with judgment and punishment? If that's so, then come to Christ tonight and flee the wrath to come. The way of escape has been made plain. It simply costs you faith. Trust and believe in this Christ and you too will be spared and saved and redeemed and bought out of bondage to slavery and made into a child of God forever in his household. And for we believers who have been made into the bride over whom the Son rejoices, he has presented to us the truth in other ways. And one of those ways is the picture that reminds us of His truth, that aids us in rejoicing in His truth, that Christ died in the place of the ungodly and has been spared from judgment. And that picture is the table of the Lord's Supper. He gives it to His bride that she might be nourished on her journey home towards the heavenly city. And the message pictured for us is this, that for the joy set before Him, Christ willingly endured the cross. It means His body and His blood were separated. They were shed that you might be saved so that He could rejoice over you. If you're trusting in Christ, loving Him, committed to the truth that He's revealed through the apostolic teaching, to fellowship with the body of Christ, to the breaking of, prayers with the saint, breaking of bread with the saints and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then bend the knee to Him. Believe in Him and trust in Him. Obey Him in baptism, and then you can join us at the table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are encouraged to hear that you delight in your bride. Well, we pray that you would build up your church, that you would use these elements at the table to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us to flee far from gossip and slander, but make us into holy people, people full of love, overflowing with love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.